is easier. Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. They never will bring you there everyone, this is Fran Lewis, this is MJ Network, MJ in memory of my sister Marsha Joyce, it's beautiful outside, and wait till you hear about Zero Hour, because my favorite character is back, Jack Ryan Jr., you don't want to mess with this guy, and Don Bentley is here to tell us about it, and when the leader of North Korea is catastrophically injured, oh well, his incapacitation inadvertently <laughs> triggers a dead man switch activating an army of sleeper agents in South Korea and precipitating a struggle for succession. And, of course, we've got to bring in my favorite guy, Jack Ryan Jr., and the campus. Good morning. How are you? And welcome to MJ Network. Good morning, Fran. It's so great to talk to you again. This is this is fun. And I have to tell you, when once, once Alora sent me the book, I just sat down and read it in two hours. I literally <laughs> sat down and read it. And I haven't done that in a while, and I'm going like, I strain, what the heck, who cares? So, <laughs> how did you create the prologue? Oh, man, that was so good. And how does it set the stage for what's going to happen? Yeah, so it was it was a really, really fun book to write um, for a couple reasons. And so my, my first book in the series was um, Target Acquired, and um, I introduced a couple of new characters that we were just talking about off air that, that are back in this one, um, Carrie Marks and Jad Mustafa. And so when I was sitting down to think about what I wanted to do for my next book, I really wanted to, I, every time I sit down to write a Clancy book, I go back over the Clancy books I loved and think to myself, like, what did he do that was so much fun that, you know, when I was first reading his books as a teenager, that just captivated me. And so Red Storm Rising was was the first book of his I read, and I remember, and I, I think I've even talked with um, about this with you on interviews before. That there's a scene in Red Storm Rising where there's an F-14 that does these strafing runs on a Russian container ship off the coast. Of, I believe it was Iceland, and and I just remember thinking, feeling like I was sitting in the cockpit of that airplane. And so when it came time to do um, Zero Hour, I knew I wanted to do. Um, more of a military thriller than I had um, done before. Certainly not to the scale of Red Storm Rising. That one, that one's a, a crazy big involved one. But more of a military thriller um, than what I had done in Target Acquired. And I also wanted to be able to show um, a conflict on the Korean Peninsula. And that one was kind of um, personal and fun for me because my first duty assignment as a brand new lieutenant apache gunship pilot was korea and it was back in the in the late 90s and so before september 11th uh, when we actually were involved in combat the korean peninsula was kind of the the closest you could get we called it freedom frontier because the 
there's still, you know, uh, there's never been a treaty signed to end the Korean War. There's still just the armistice. And so every now and then North Korea shells South Korea or they mess with some of their boats. And, in fact, when I was there, there was one instance when um, Korean, North Korean and South Korean um, boats were, or gunships were, or gunboats, rather, were exchanging fire and stuff like that. And it got to the point where we thought we might actually uh, have to fly out and do a show of force and we were about to load hellfires on the Apaches for the first time and go do that. And so I really wanted to show what that was like, and, and I, I get to do that through – one of the point of view characters being a young Apache pilot like me that was at his first duty assignment. But the, to go back to your question, I wanted to, I wanted to have a way to kick off um, what could be a conventional war on the Korean Peninsula, but not have not like what what, what Larry Bond did, where he showed uh, in Red Phoenix an entire um, where the entire book is actually you know a, a second Korean War, and so. The way that I used it to kind of kick it off, as you said, is in the prologue, what you see is is that the dictator of North Korea has been incapacitated, and there's a member of the Politburo who sees this as the opportunity of a lifetime because because of the dead man switch that you you mentioned, since the, the leader of North Korea was inca- incapacitated, there's already some special operations activity going on in South Korea from sleeper North Korean agents that are there. And so this guy, um, Pak, who, who's the member of the Politburo, says he's going to use that to his advantage and see if he can, you know, take control of North Korea. And so that's what you see in the prologue is it kind of kicks off. And what's really fun about that, too, is that the, um, the event in the prologue um, that that facilitates this and lets Pac have the potential of of, potential, uh, of, of possibly um, taking over North Korea is based on an actual event that happened. And so it's um, the right, like all thriller writers, especially kind of techno or military thrillers, I'm constantly looking at the news and flagging articles that seem interesting. And so a number of years ago, there was a Russian um, prototype cruise missile and it's called Skyfall, which is what we called it, uh, what NATO called it, kind of like the, I guess there was a James Bond uh, movie of that same name. And what was very interesting about this cruise missile is it was a nuclear-powered cruise missile. And so what that means is that the air actually comes in um, into the propulsion system of the missile, gets superheated in the nuclear reactor, and then exhausted out the cruise missile. And so it's actually spewing radioactive air um, behind it as it flies, but because it's nuclear-powered, it, in, in essence, could have an unlimited range because it could, you know, just circle the globe forever. Well, when the Russians tried it, you know, I assume we were, we were watching, and there was a, um, an explosion that was so large it actually registered on the Richter scale, and that was, I think, the first indication that something had gone wrong, and so the Russians were you know, lying about the test like they always did. But it, what, what we've been able to piece together, what journalists um, have been able to piece together, is they tested the missile, it went into the ocean and failed. And so as they were trying to recover the missile, um, the reactor went super critical and had this massive explosion and killed a bunch of Russian scientists. And they were, for a while, they were actually calling it, um, you know, a, a new, their miniature Chernobyl because of the, the contamination and, and, and everything that happened. And that was such a good story 
I said, you know what, I'm going to steal that and put it in this Jack Ryan book. And so that's kind of the inciting incident that, that kicks off Zero Hour. I don't think people realize how much research goes into writing these. And a lot yeah. of people are writing Russians and the Chinese or whatever. But I have to thank you for not having 5,000 characters. I just read a book. I won't tell you the title. It had 350 characters listed at the beginning of the book. <laughs> And I didn't even want to finish it. I have to interview the author and go like, oh, my God, why me? So let's get to my really... Jack Ryan Jr., someone else do Jack Ryan Sr., and Jack Ryan Jr.'s got... He's energetic. He's he's more interesting. Because Jack Ryan Sr. pretty much... He works through his own office. He doesn't get involved in all this stuff. So why is Jack in soul... And who is he supposed to meet and why? And then things don't go exactly the way he plans. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Mark Cameron, who's a, who's a good friend of mine, does an incredible job writing the Jack Ryan Sr. series. But like you said, it's every time he writes a book, I mean, he's a phenomenal writer, but I, I think to myself, like, how is he going to do it this time? Because as you said, Jack Ryan Sr. Is, is president and has been president for a long time. And so Mark has to always think of new ways to, to involve him and to um, make what he's doing in the White House compelling, even as there's action, um, you know, happening off stage or around the globe. And Mark does an incredible job for that. I get to be, have a much easier job in that Jack Ryan Jr. is a member of the campus, which is an off-the-books intelligence agency um, that another iconic um, – uh, Clancy character John Clark, who is actually uh, my, I believe the John Clark origin story, which is called Without Remorse, is the most popular book in the Clancy um, uh, archive of books or, or portfolio of books. And so John Clark is kind of the director of operations um, for the uh, the um, uh, campus, and, and Jack Ryan Jr. works for him. And so one of the things about the campus that Mark Cameron started. Uh, in his last book, is trying to find how do they find people who um, can come on the campus and how do they train new people and how do they do things like that. And so Mark touched on that a little bit in his last book in Chain of Command. And so I thought, you know what would be interesting is if we sent Jack Ryan Jr. to South Korea to meet with somebody who could potentially be a uh, a campus helper. And so that, that lady's name is Isabel Yang. And he's in South Korea to meet with her when the, 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 South, the, the sleeper cells, the North Korean sleeper cells, activate in South Korea and start causing trouble everywhere. And that's another thing that's um, rooted in reality. Uh, North Korea is unique mm-hmm. in that they have, they, they have the largest special operations forces uh, in the world. And they, and they use these people like human cruise missiles, if you will. And mm-hmm. so before – before a war would break out, North Korea would flood South Korea with special operations teams whose job is to maybe take out a single target like the president or a, mm. a, a very important political figure and then stay there and cause havoc in South Korea until North Korea you know, invades and, and, and they're, and they're um, reunited with their fellow North Koreans. And so I always thought that was a, a very, very interesting facet of the North Korean-South Korean one, and so that plays very heavily in zero hour as well. 
He's scary, Kim Jong, whatever. He really is. Yeah. He gets away with this, and his people are brainwashed. It's almost as if they're just like little robots. They don't, they don't even dare to say anything. And I know, and his sister's even crazier than he is. That's what really scares me. Yeah. It's like I wouldn't want to live next door to him. Yeah. And he gets away with it, <laughs> and that that just doesn't seem right. Between him and what, well, what somebody's doing in the Ukraine is even worse. No, and that's a great – I was going to go to the same place. The reason why he gets away with it is because North Korea is now a nuclear power, and that was one of the yeah, things the United States failed at was to prevent North Korea from acquiring a nuclear weapon. And so my last book that just came out a month ago, Hostile Intent, looks at that in Ukraine, yeah. and the very same scenario happening in that Putin is, is in large part able to get away with what he's doing – but because he heads a nuclear-armed country. And so I think we can draw that same corollary and say, why yeah. is it an extremely bad idea to allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon? Because mm-hmm. if they do, then the, the mullahs in, in Iran become the equivalent of Putin or Kim Jong-il or any of the other dictators that now have a nuclear weapon, and so you have to – it causes you to – double and triple think how you respond to certain things because in the back of your mind you're always thinking is this worth escalating into a nuclear war it's, it's, that's scary it's, it's just listening to the news I, I shut it off half the time I don't even want to know so we've got a character that I really didn't like he's dangerous Pack. and mm-hmm. how did you he's not a very nice person he's got his own little agenda there yeah, he's not a very nice person. So he's what's interesting in um, in North Korea is this combination between uh, more of the the traditional kind of Soviet um, style communist government that you saw in the Soviet Union and China and, and and some of that where you have the semblance of government, but then you also have this this man at the top who in in um, in, in my book is a guy named Choi, um, who's modeled on the actual leader of, of, of North Korea, which is very much a dynasty, right, where you know, he inherited his, in, in actual North Korea, it passed from father to son, and so you have all of these family members. And so it's this really weird, um, really weird dynamic where it's, it's kind of a government but not really a government because it's also a dictatorship. And so – and so you live there, even if you're one of the members at the top, or maybe especially if you're one of the members of the top, mm. you live in constant fear for your life. Because the, when you're a dictator, your biggest fear is being overthrown, and you know that mm. if you're overthrown, it, it won't be a peaceful transfer of power. You're probably going to end up getting pushed against a wall and shot. And so what that means is that they constantly institute purges. You know, Stalin was famous for doing that. Um, The leader in North Korea is famous for doing that. And so what you see is this guy, Pak, who's put in a position where he thinks, you know what, I've been at the top for a while. If something goes wrong, I'll be one of the people who gets purged. And now it looks like there's an imbalance in power in my country what do I do? And so he acts almost – he's certainly not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he, he acts yeah. almost within you know, self-preservation because he feels like if, if he doesn't feel, fill the, the power void left by the incapacitated um, leader of North Korea, 
whoever fills that could end up looking around and saying, all right, now I need to get rid of Pac in order to secure my hold on power. And so he does what he thinks he needs to in order to survive, but he's certainly not a nice guy. <laughs> no, he's not, and nobody wants to mess with him because he's crazy too. So here comes <laughs> this, 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 this scene got me because this next two people, Jad and Carrie, like where did they come from all of a sudden? And it took me a while to go, wait a minute, they're not bad guys. They're they're sort of good guys. So how did yeah. you get involved with this? And what happened in the restaurant? How did you create that scene? I, I didn't want to go into a restaurant after that. Sure. <laughs> well, like I said, it, it was Chad and Carrie made their debut um, during yeah. Target Acquired. And they are um, – they are Green Berets, uh, part of Operational Detachment Alpha or ODA 555 or Triple Nickel. And Triple Nickel is a really neat um, ODA team because of their operational history. They're based out of Fort Campbell. Uh, they're part of um, 5th Special Forces Group. And they were the horse soldiers during Afghanistan. And so if you remember, the, there was a lot of um, – articles written and even a book called Horse Soldiers about these Green Berets who went into Afghanistan and, and uh, linked up with the Northern Alliance and called in airstrikes by horseback um, against the Taliban. And so I made um, these, these two folks as, as fictional members of that team. And, and one of the things um, that sets Green Berets apart from any other member of the special operations community is Green Berets, their, sole, their, their primary job is to go into mm. a country and link up with an indigenous force and train that force um, to fight. Mm. And so now that there is you know, a shift to China, what you're seeing more and more is, is um, special operations teams trying to figure out how to operate in what's called a denied environment. And so what that means is you look at China, if, if you can imagine as, as somebody who's Caucasian or American trying to operate in China, you stand out. You know, you're not in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. People grow beards and they try and get tanned to, to kind of look more like a local. But in China, you're not able to do that. And so, and so what I thought it would be neat to do is have these guys, this team, practicing that mission, practicing for that mission by doing an exercise in Seoul. So Seoul – South Korea is one of the most densely populated um, mm. per capita cities in the world. And so Carrie and, and Jad are in the middle of doing this exercise in South Korea when um, a couple of the North Korean um, uh, sleeper agents that we talked about before come into the restaurant when they're, when, that they are eating at uh, with the intention of assassinating some, some South Korean high-level political figures, and, and Carrie and Jad kind of have that go down in front of them and then get pulled into the conflict um, because of that. So it was, it was a really fun scene to write, and it also got to show, mm -hmm. like I said, the nature of the, the North Korean Special Operations Forces. Again, they are, they are those human cruise missiles whose job is to infiltrate and then kill target of opportunities. It's it's so scary that there are so many dangerous people in the world that you never know where you want to go. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there are days I think people just say, "I'm going to stay home and hide. <laughs> I don't want to know. It's it's not safe anywhere." So, how does Jack meet Isabel, and why, and who is Kira? Yeah, so like I said, Jack is going to um, to South Korea to meet Isabel Yang, who is. 
someone who popped up on the CIA's radar um, a while back. And, and she popped up on the CIA's radar because she mm-hmm. um, has a, a, a nationality that's interested to them. She's a scientist, and, and she has a father who was um, uh, a military member who was killed. And so she kind of fits the profile that would be interesting mm-hmm. for the CIA. But when the, uh, the case officer... Um, pitched her and said, hey, do you want to come work with us? She turned them down, and she turned them down um, for some reasons that she wanted to continue her education and everything. And so what she has now moved off into where she's doing a study abroad in Korea, and so, so Jack you know, gets her name from the, the, the campus CIA liaison and says, hey, she's interesting. I know she turned down the CIA, but maybe we don't picture to become a member of the campus maybe we just picture to become uh, a helper and so if you if you love like daniel silva books like i do one of the unique things he talks about in the Mossad, the israeli intelligence service is there are the service is fairly small in comparison to other intelligence services and what they rely on is this network of helpers who are usually mm. um, either Jewish or sympathetic to Israel that are located throughout the world that they can call on, you know, people Mm. who will give them a hotel key or people who will pass them the keys Mm. to a rental car, something like that. And so that's what Jack Ryan Jr. is going to meet with Isabel Yang because he thinks maybe she could be a, a helper based on her placement and language skills and such. And then what he figures out is she has a friend who's a Russian scientist who had been a roommate um, of hers, who is now, her name is Kira, uh, who you mentioned before, and she's now sending Isabel some pretty interesting texts. And as kind of the whole South Korean, North Korean peninsula is going up in arms, Isabel gets a text from Kira that just says run. And so that's um, where we kind of meet Isabel, and Jack meets Isabel, and and the story launches off from there. She's kind of brave. She really was. <laughs> she is kind that's, of brave, that's what, and it's and it's it, it is it, because it you have a female to, character that's that. a chicken. You don't want that. Yeah, she's really brave. <laughs> so now we come to somebody else that I'm not sure about, um, Alex <laughs> Brown. And what is the significance yeah. of the test facility in North Korea? Those are dangerous. I mean, you know, I, I thought yeah. about this the other day. Um, Kim Jong crazy man, and Putin, who's not normal either. I can't believe that they can't try them as war criminals for what he's doing. He's, he's oh, my God, I can't even watch that anymore. So who is Alex Brown, and yeah. why, does the, why are they allowed to have this test missile thing in North Korea? Nobody stops this guy. He's scary. Yeah, so um, Alex Brown, is. he also made his um, debut during Target Acquired, and he is the team lead for – Opera- operational detachment um, 555. Mm-hmm. So he's the Green Beret team leader. He's he's the boss of, of Kerry and Jad. And so the missile site you mentioned, North Korea has several um, missile sites that are um, scattered across the peninsula. The one I chose is on um, more of the eastern coast, and it's actually based on an actual missile site that they use. And they have a number of things that happen at that missile site. So they test rocket engines where they just, as they're working on new fuel or different ways of propelling the rocket, they have an engine test stand. They have a launch pad where they, where they test their different missiles. They have, you know, a big um, building where um, the missile is actually mated with the warhead and, and all of that. And so 
Um, what and so to your question, why are they allowed to have that goes back to um, the same answer I would give you for why is Putin allowed mm-hmm. to invade Ukraine is because once you have a nuclear weapon, you're mm-hmm. allowed to do pretty much anything you want because who's going to tell you no, right? And so, and so we can and I, I don't I don't mean to say that flippantly. Certainly, there are things that we can do and we are doing both against. Um, Putin, as I talk about mm-hmm. in my book, Hostile Intent, and against North Korea between sanctions and ways to try and isolate them and international pressure. But at the end of the day, they have that site because everything we do with North Korea, we have to run through the calculus of what would happen if um, they decided to use one of their nuclear weapons. And so much of the action kind of centers on this test site in North Korea because that's where the um, – mm-hmm. The test went wrong, and, and the leader of North Korea uh, was injured. And so you get to see Alex Brown. He's kind of—he's actually based on um, a friend of mine. Of many of these, I should say, many of the characters in here were mm-hmm. either based on friends of mine, or I was able to use names of actual people I served with with their permission. And so, for instance, the um, many of the Apache pilots you see listed in in um, Mike Reese's section were folks I actually flew with and served with that I got to actually now put in a Clancy book. And so um, my when I was in um, the Army, uh, when I did my combat tour in Afghanistan, my uh, Alex Brown is actually based on uh, the guy that I flew with the most, my front seater, who then, after we got back from Afghanistan, he left Army Aviation and became a Green Beret and a, and a team leader. Mm. And so... That's kind of my, my tip of the hat to him by putting him actually in there. And it's like I said, that's one of the fun parts of the job is you get to you get to put little Easter eggs in there for your friends. That is good. My nephew was in Afghanistan twice. He's a staff sergeant in the army now, and I and I worry. And he's oh, wow. uh, he was in yeah he was in uh, South Korea, and he was in Germany. Mm-hmm. But he was in Iran and Iraq, and, you know, like you have car palpitations until they come home. Yeah. For some reason, yeah. he likes it. So what yeah. What we got packed, and I, I love it. You know, I wish I could be like, well, do more people like him. He's scary. He <laughs> makes his point. He's, he plays a role. Yeah. He's there. And he manages to gain control, and people turn pale because they're afraid of him. So how, and he gets yeah. away with it. And what gets me is that they have these nuclear weapons. They come in and they're allowed to kill people, and that's about it. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing because you. Um, so when when the the actual leader of um, of North Korea now was securing his hold um, after his father passed away, he he was became famous for the outlandish ways that he would execute people. And so, you know, he, he actually used this anti-aircraft system once to shoot people, or I believe it was his father oh, when there was a coup attempt once where these these two, a, a section of military leaders tried to um, take control of North Korea. His father survived that coup attempt, and then he took all of the people who he thought was involved with that, which may – may have been or may they may have just had the misfortune of working for the wrong person and he put them in a building and burned the building to the ground and so the the amount these the people there are both <clears throat> excuse me incredibly brutal and then also have an almost godlike control over your life where you 
you know, you do one thing wrong and it can be a single phone call and you're now, Mm -hmm. you know, not just you, but your wife and family and everything is, is now on, on, you know, thrown into a pit with a pack of hungry dogs. And so, you know, the brutality of it is just overwhelming. And so I, what I wanted to do too with this book is, is kind of give a glimpse of what it might be like to live in that regime where, where you're, mm-hmm. you have no control over your destiny, where any decision you make could, end, could, could endanger not just your life but the life of those you hold dear. It's so real, though. I, I often yeah. wonder why. Yeah. I mean, I don't think too many people visit North Korea. I don't think anybody does. And he probably <laughs> wouldn't let them in anyway. And South Korea is very brave because he's completely out of his mind. And it just doesn't seem yeah. fair that people like that are allowed to do whatever they want to kill people because murder is wrong and they think it's okay. Yeah. So yeah. now we've got Jack in South Korea and, and he's got Isabel. And how does she become part of it? And then Kira is working with radiation sickness, so she's an expert in that. That's even, I mean, yeah. even just getting, even just getting X-rays and CAT scans are too much sometimes too. So, how does she become part of what's going on, Isabel? I really like her. Yeah. So, like I said, Isabel is um, is in South Korea doing a, a study abroad, if you will, and is friends with um, this this Russian scientist named Kira who is one of the premier um, doctors who treats radiation sickness. And so what you, what you start to figure out is that Kira is, is in um, the Korean Peninsula. Her presence in the Korean Peninsula has something to do with the, um, the, the test that goes awry the nuclear test that goes awry that starts all of this. And so I don't want to go too much into why and stuff because there's some neat little surprises there, but that's how they're linked together. And because um, Kira knows Isabel and Isabel's family history, she reaches out to Isabel for help, and Isabel then in turn reaches out to Jack Ryan Jr. He's cute at least, but I don't think his girly sanity can feel about it. She's a, she, she, she didn't get a very big part in this one, but I like her. So we have we have Mr. C, who I love, and Jack has to mm-hmm. run this by him, right? So how does he get yeah. convinced, John, how does she convince him to let him run the show? Because he doesn't usually run the show. They do. Yeah. So that was one of the things. When you come into a series like this, that's an iconic series that's been – yeah. Um, very successful and around for a long time. One of the things you look to do as a writer is say, what is a part of this series that I could drill into and flesh out more? You know, both because you want to to add something of value to the series and also because you as a writer, you need to approach, you know, what interests you about the series um, that you can kind of focus on. And so for me, it was always that Jack Ryan Jr. Um, was was the member of the team, the only member of the campus who didn't have the resume to be on the campus. And so what I mean by that is if you look at everybody else, like John Clark was a former Vietnam-era Navy SEAL and, and the, the member of Rainbow Six. Ding Chavez was um, an infantry, light infantry soldier that we first, that Clancy first brought to life with um, clear and present danger and then was a member of Rainbow Six, and you go on down the line, and then you get to Jack Ryan Jr., and he's on the team 
at first primarily because his name is Jack Ryan Jr. and he's his father's son. Mm-hmm. So he starts on the team as very much on their white side as a financial analyst and then through hard work and, and busting his mutt and training, he earns the right to move to the operations side. But because of that, he is always the junior member of the team. He's always the guy who who is when is the one who's just you know following orders and, and doing what John Clark and the rest of them did. And so starting with Target Acquired, I wanted to push that out a little bit and say, you know what, by now Jack Ryan Jr. has been a campus member for a number of years. He's earned the right or has earned his spurs, as we would say in the military, to be able to be – a full-fledged operator and helm missions on his own. And so you see mm. that a little bit in Target Acquired where he gets into trouble and um, rather than doing what Clark asked him to do, which is a safe thing, he pushes forward and kind of a little bit runs the operation on his own. And so this time, because of what's happening in Korea and, and the war breaking out and the fact that nobody else can get into South Korea because it's locked down and it's under martial law, it, it was a perfect opportunity to let Jack Ryan Jr. spread his wings a little, if you will, and get that, that thing to transition from the junior member of the team to a team member who can actually helm an operation on his own. And so in order to do that, he still has to go through his boss, John Clark, and, and convince him that that's the right thing to do. And so that was a really fun scene, too, to kind of play out that old-school mm. John Clark who still is looking at this as his best friend's son he's got to keep safe to, hey, maybe this guy has actually grown up all of a sudden and should be afforded the opportunity to, to, to lead a mission on its own. I'm just wondering what would happen if the leader of South Korea or the leader of North Korea read these books. Not an idea. <laughs> for, for, for a plot of their own. <laughs> That I always wondered about well, that. I, I doubt that people in North Korea get to read Tom Clancy or anything that goes against him. Yeah, I think that's probably a safe bet. You know, what's, what's interesting, what's so interesting about South Korea is we've talked a lot about the nuclear aspect of it, which is horrible, but, but mm. South Korea is in more danger, just as much danger from the conventional side. And the reason why yeah, I is think because... So. Yeah, Seoul, South Korea is within artillery range of North Korea. And so mm. whenever, whenever you would, would – when you're stationed in Korea, you practice fighting um, what would be a Korean War multiple times throughout your tour there. And mm-hmm. the first couple of days is always the artillery battle where North Korean artillery and South and American artillery literally fight for prominence. And so they're shooting at each other. They're shooting at targets. They're trying – one side is trying to establish dominance so that then the ground forces can move out under um, cover of artillery fire. And it's crazy because Seoul is such a densely populated city that the estimates would be when the start of the war happens just from conventional artillery, it would be the hundreds of thousands of people dead, not even from a mm. nuclear weapon, just from conventional artillery. And so that's something that you see – uh, that plays out quite a bit in Zero Hour, mm. where they have you know the justifiable threat of a nuclear weapon, but even then, Seoul, because of its proximity to North Korea, is in essence a city that's held hostage by North Korea, because anything that's too provocative 
everyone knows that South North Korea could rain down artillery mm. shells on, on Seoul, and there would be very little that we could do about it in the early stages to avert that bloodbath. I don't know why anybody wants to live there. It's scary. It's, <laughs> I wonder sometimes. I want you know something. I've never seen. I looked it up, but I can't find too many pictures of North Korea. And I'm saying, I wonder if these people go to the movies, if they could go shopping, if she, if he monitors. I mean, he must have cameras in everybody's house. He must know what every person is doing. And you have to really watch what you're saying. So here's two more people. Who is Min Jun and Chai Wan? And they're, they're on, so one of them is a good guy. They're supposedly, what is their mission? And how did you create their scene? What do they want to liberate the South? Yeah, so um, Min Jun is, is a, what I wanted to show, like I said, is kind of like um, how Clancy did it so well with Red Storm Rising. Yeah, is, that was um, a good one. The, yeah, it was, it was amazing. Is the um, viewpoint of what it looks like when, when we're leading up to war and, and how, that, how that shapes. And so in, in Hostile Intent, my previous book, you saw that in the form of, of one of the points of view character was a, um, an SVR officer who's in the Ukraine causing trouble and helping with the Spetsnaz teams set the condition for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In this book, what you see is the team lead of a North Korean special operations force who is infiltrating South Korea and is in the process of um, setting the conditions for the North Korean um, uh, invasion by doing some some very nefarious things, and it's and that part is actually based in reality too. In that um, there have been several times. So North Korea has what's called their midget subs that are very small mm-hmm. submarines designed to ferry special operations forces undetected into South Korea, where even during peacetime they will do mm-hmm. that so that these team members get. Um, experience operating in South Korea and such. Well, what's interesting is that um, Mm. actually I think it was right before I got to South Korea um, in the the late 90s, one of these um, submarines ran aground, and and so the um, special operators had to get out and the crew members had to get out. And when when the submarine was discovered, the South Koreans then, the next thing they found were the crew members of the submarine all lined up and shot in the head or killed. Because the first thing their own, yeah, the first thing their own special operations people did was kill all the Navy crew members because they were not equipped to survive in South Korea. And so they killed them. So they wouldn't be a drag on the men who could survive in, in South Korea. And so, that's the craziness and the level of dedication um, that you see here. And so I kind of replicated mm. that where you f- first meet um, this character when his, his midget sub has run aground on a sandbar and he's trying to figure out, can I make it in or can I not? And, and mm. these people have very short life expectancies because there's no ticket back home. Their only mm. job is to go in, hit their targets, and then hopefully stay alive until North Korea, you know, invades and reaches um, reaches them. And that and that probably is not ever going to happen. They're probably on a one-way mission, like I said, kind of a human cruise missile. And so I really wanted to be able to show what that looked like from a North Korean commando's um, perspective, as well as again one of the things that the Russians 
you know, going back to hostile intent, one of the things that the Russians had mm. done so well in previous invasions of Ukraine and Georgia was to set the conditions so it looked like um, Russian forces were being invited into these countries as peacekeeping forces. Mm. And so I wanted to do the same way in South Korea and show how could North Korean special operations folks set the conditions to destabilize South Korea, to drive a wedge between South Korea and the United States, and really set the conditions for a North Korean invasion of South Korea. And so you get to see that um, through, through this guy's eyes as he's um, operating in South Korea. Before I forget, Thursday, somebody we all know and love, award-winning author Alan Topol will be here with Chinese Agent. On the 13th, The Cry of the Innocent. On the 16th, I've never interviewed him before. I'm excited. Uh, Treachery Times 2, Robert McCaw. He asked for the interview. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, And there's a brand new one. He's been on um, Facebook. William uh, Morrison, The Handler. He asked for an interview with me, too, for his debut novel. you got to read it. It's fantastic. Uh, There are a few more, but we're going to end. It's Mike Woodward. It's Mike Woodward. I don't know. They, they, the yeah. handler is the book. The handler is the book. Mike Woodward. Yep. Yeah. He. I am so excited. Like, his publicist, yep. two of them asked for the interview, and I go like, Are you sure? <laughs> that book was fantastic. Yeah. His characters are great. It's amazing. It's that's yeah, and my then favorite. Before I end of month. Year. Yeah, I know, and I've got five copies of the book. Seriously, they sent me like five of them, <laughs> and my yeah, somebody. There's a lot of people getting those. And I wouldn't want to forget that on the 27th, the one and only Tess Gerritsen listened to me. Mm, so what a, what a way to have the end of month and an Irish Johansson in August. She wants two hours, people, for two bucks. Wow. And, wow. You and got only, quite a lot I won't do that for anybody but Iris. But, yeah. <laughs> so did that, this is exciting. And let's see. What is operate? Oh, wait a minute. I can't forget this question. Um, what is what, who is the woman that contacts Jack and why? That was scary. That was like a, a phone yeah, or whatever. Yeah, so that's, that's another one. I'm going to tread carefully to make sure I don't give anything yeah, I know. away. But what's, what's, what's interesting or what I try and show is um, as – so you see we talked about Pac before who um, was, the, was the member of the Politburo who's watching yeah. – um, as as North Korea's leadership kind of descends into chaos. And so he acts in the way that, that he can um, in order to fill that power uh, void. And then there's another woman who I'm not, I'm not going to name, but who is also um, operating in her own um, self-interest. And so in some ways, Jack feels like he's caught in the middle between um, – you know, two. Neither one are good choices because neither one are good power or good people. But he's trying to figure out, you know, what is the best choice for stability? How can he keep the the North Koreans mm. from invading South Korea in this? What's the starting um, opening salvos of a of another Korean War from from enveloping the entire peninsula and perhaps turning nuclear at the same time? That's scary. So what is Operation Skyfall? And how did you create the technology for this? Because that technology really exists. It's really scary. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. 
I talked about that a little bit before where it was mm-hmm. actually based on a Russian prototype cruise missile. And, um, and so that um, the Russians actually did test that and, and it didn't go well. Um, like I said, mm. when the, 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 the missile, when they launched it, went into the ocean. And so they wanted to try and recover that, and they had this special ship to hoist the missile back off the ocean bed floor. And as they were doing it, something happened with the reactor where it went uh, super crit- or went critical, and uh, the mm. resulting explosion was big enough that it registered as an earthquake on the Richter scale. And so... The Russians, being the Russians, tried to cover it up and everything at first, but much like Chernobyl, if you read about it, it's fascinating. You know, people started, number one, it, the explosion registered on the Richter scale, and then people started seeing, you know, element, radiation trace elements or bigger than trace elements of radiation and kind of, and then at the same time, all these Russian scientists were evacuated out and buried and, and so they, they, they ended up putting it together that this test had gone catastrophically wrong, but it's a fascinating and, and potentially a game-changing piece of technology if they could get it right. Because you imagine back in the Cold War, God. Um, before ballistic missiles were, intercontinental ballistic missiles were understood and, and reliable and stuff, they used to have, the Strategic Air Command used to have bombers loaded with nuclear missiles that were orbiting at, at, at any time, you know, big bombers full of them and, and then the other ones were on standby to scramble so that you had that nuclear deterrent that was just up in the air ready to fly into Russia if need be. Well, this cruise missile could be something similar in that because it's nuclear-powered, it has an unlimited range. And so you could mm. launch it and have it loiter somewhere forever as kind of the ultimate, you know, the ultimate sword over your head. Or if you wanted to use it, what makes cruise missiles – so hard to detect is they fly very close to the surface of the earth so it's very hard to see them on radar and if you mm. had one that was had an unlimited range you could you could you could plot a flight course that would take it around radars and let it you know let it go you know maybe if you expected an attack from the east this cruise missile could fly all the way to the south and then come in from the other direction and so it, it could potentially be a game-changing technology, and 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 plenty mm. books are all about fun technology, and so it was something I I definitely wanted to pull in. You know what's scary? I'm just sitting and listening. That what would happen if every country in the world had nuclear weapons? That was even scarier. Yeah. Because that's what it's Absolutely. that's what it seems like. They're all that they're all trying to to be the the lead power of the world. And they don't realize that that's not going to happen as long as we exist. Uh Uh-uh. And we need some strong leadership out there to to stop them. So in reality, would one of our agents ever really work with somebody connected to the supreme leader? I mean, would they actually do something like that without saying who it is? (laughs) I question out who it is. (laughs) Sure. I I think one of the things that you look at – when you're evaluating as as a uh, as a case officer, which is which is a person whose job is to run and recruit um, what in the intelligence community they call assets, people um, who can provide information. As you look at something, it's called access. And so, is the person yeah. that you want to recruit in a position where they know information that would be of value to you? And if you could recruit somebody who was close to the leadership, you know, in in Putin's case, maybe, you know, 
one of his daughters or mistresses or, or something like that, or in you know South in North Korea's case, maybe a family member or somebody who's a close confident confidant. That is something as an intelligence officer you're always looking for is access, access, access. And so I think it would you know maybe it's not too far fetched to say that if you had if you were a a case officer and that opportunity presented itself, that would probably be one you'd be willing to explore. I know. It's like, so what would happen if PAC succeeded? What would happen hmm. if any of them succeeded? That's scary. Yeah, that's the question. And right? I happen to and like that character. Question. I can't answer that one. <laughs> and, and, and that's the question that, um, honestly, the, the National Command Authority has to think through every time they look at, at, at North Korea because it's yeah. not a stable government. It's not... It doesn't mm. have the ability to do a peaceful, stable transition of power. And so every time you see the mm. leader of North Korea who hasn't been in public for a while or is rumored to be sick yeah, I think or something, sick. that's what – yeah, I mean that's what everybody in the intelligence community and the National Command Authority is thinking. Is this the time when the balloon's finally going to go up? And it's a, it's a terrible place to be in, right? It's awful, but his sister, if she takes over, is even worse from what I gather. Just reading about her is even more frightening. So, yeah. Yeah. Wh- what role did Mike Reese's forces play? And I get the feeling that you're not done with Korea yet. <laughs> so Mike That's Reese just my brilliant is, uh, thinking another... today. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so Mike Reese is another friend of mine who uh, was actually a uh, – an Apache helicopter instructor pilot mm-hmm. um, who was a phenomenal uh, pilot and a great mentor to, of mine. And so I took him and made him a new Apache platoon leader. And so the Apaches in, in South Korea have a very unique mission, and in, in it's twofold. So the first being, if you remember we talked about before, the when the war would start, the, the North mm-hmm. Korean special operations folks would get ferried down the coast of Korea in these really fast boats, and so the boats are small and agile, and so too fast for Navy boats to interdict and and too small or really hard for Navy fixed-wing assets to interdict. And so the Army Apache helicopters would actually fly out over the ocean and interdict these boats and shoot them up. And so that's the first part of the mission. The second part of the mission is something that's known as a deep attack where you're your mission as, a, as an Army Apache pilot is to cross what's called the forward line of troops where the, the forces are fighting and go hunt and kill the replacement armored columns that are coming down behind them. Because the theory being that if you kill those replacement columns, then the front lines will collapse under the weight of the mm. assigned um, or combined you know, North, or South Korean American forces fighting the North Korean. And so, that was another mission that was very unique to Korea that you would practice over and over again of being able to to position your forces in a way that would look, allow you to look down in those narrow value, valleys and identify the armored column that you want, needed to kill and to practice doing that. And so Mike Reese is a new lieutenant who shows up in Korea just as this all kicks off and finds himself mm. uh, in the position where he gets to take uh, place in both of those very unique uh, Army Apache helicopter missions. I'm just wondering. It's like really, I don't think people realize how much research and how much fact is really in these novels. 
I think some of them yeah. just think it's all fiction. I don't think people realize just what you what you're writing is practically things that you've been through. So, what's next? And I hope you're bringing Carrie yep. and Jad back because I really like them a lot. Seriously. Well, I thank you for saying that because the the response for them has been really fun. And I also say that Jad, those are both um, really to other friends of mine. Yeah. Jad is actually, that's not his, his real last name, but Jad is actually a Navy SEAL. And so I get to make oh, him I a love Green him. Beret. He's great. I, knew it wouldn't, I knew it would make him really mad that he was a, was a Green Beret. And, in fact, there's another character in there, um, Lieutenant Brandon Cates, who is a yeah. Navy SEAL, who is a friend of mine. He's actually an Army Ranger. And so that's one of the fun things I get to do is, make my friends mad by making them other characters. But to answer your question, so I just turned in the fourth book of my Matt Drake series. It's called Hostile Intent, and that will be out um, May next year, and that takes place in Afghanistan during the fall of Afghanistan. And so it, it actually has two different timelines. You get to see Matt and Frodo together during their first tour of duty in Afghanistan oh, nice. and see them operate together. Yeah, so that's a lot of fun. And then you also – get to see Matt um, there in Afghanistan during the fall. And I am just now working on um, the next Clancy book. And so I'm very, I'm still in the early drafting uh, phase. And so I don't want to talk too much about what it's about. I'm not sure that what I think it's going to be about now is actually what it's going to be about. But yeah, I'm, both of those I'm super, super excited about. I can't wait for if, – if folks loved Hostile Intent, which was my last, my third Matt Drake novel, I think they're going to love Forgotten War. Well, I know. Hostile Intent was great. And by the way, I don't think you saw it. Um, I have this habit because I can get away with stuff because I'm just reviews and I'm a, I know a talk show host. So every June, it's on Facebook, I listed the top 22 – books for 2021 and yours was the first one uh thank you so much thank you so much friend that really means a lot to me i mean i did and i hope i get the next ones too because you have the best publicist elora is crazy she's great <laughs> and she, she she keeps me she keeps me busy here and she says now did you get this did you send this did i guess now make sure that the questions are in two tens i said Laura, don't worry about it. i got this I mean, I've worked with, I've read about 10,000 books in the last 10 years. I'm serious. My husband counts. Oh, my goodness. And just just since January, I've read about 100, maybe more. It explains me. Yeah. You know, something that's the greatest. This is the great. I have so much fun doing this. It makes me happy. So you have to bring, I don't care if anybody doesn't like Gary and Chad. I I love them. I like Isabel. you know, it's it's more interesting without well, Jack Ryan Sr. The last one was they kidnapped the first lady. That was a twist. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, yep. Kathy yep. Ryan, you don't want to mess with Kathy Ryan. She she held her own. Nope. But when I read about nope. Jack Ryan Jr., I feel like I'm getting into a fight, which is great. And <laughs> he's, he's interesting. So where can everybody oh, get every one of your books? And start from the beginning of the Clancy series, Target Acquired. So you get to the feel of Jack, and then read this one, then read Hostile Intent, and then read, um, I read the other ones too, The Outside Man, I read all of them. Mm, Pretty sure I did. Yeah, thank you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the easiest way to find me is my website, and it's um, www.donbentleybooks.com, so just D-O-N-B-E-N-T-L-E-Y, books.com. You can see everything I'm working on, um, 
sign up for my newsletter. We do giveaways and stuff. And then if you're in social media, I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter, and my handle is at Bentley Don B. So just at B E N T L E Y D O N B. I always love hearing from readers, and and would love if you stopped by and 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 left me a note. You know what I miss though. I usually go to the Thriller Fest because I get invited because I'm the only mm. media person they invite. And I felt mm-hmm. I wasn't sure this year. I did Kim send me an invitation mm-hmm. to come because I do everything and they just sort of let me come, except for the hotel. They just let me come <laughs> on them. I, I mean, seriously, yeah. I, I I get to, you know, do whatever, but I was afraid because of the virus that I wasn't sure, yeah. Yeah. you know, whether to do How was the Sheridan? Was it nice? The Sheridan was nice, but it was fantastic because it's been three years since we've seen each other. Yeah, and I know. I my my last Thriller Fest, my book hadn't my first book without sanction hadn't come out yet, and now three years later, as of today, I now have five books out, which is kind of crazy. But there were a whole bunch of other people who debuted at the same time that I'd never met before, and so it really felt like a family reunion. It was fantastic, and Kim Howe just does an amazing job running that conference. She's she's the best, and I've met Daniel Palmer, and I've met Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. They've been on my show a couple of times, and I really wanted That's to meet awesome. um, Boyd Morrison and Elizabeth because I just interviewed them, and mm-hmm. it, it was I think the first time I went to a Shula Fest, Irish Johansson was there. I think I was Star Trek, <laughs> but she's she's really nice. But I want to thank you so <laughs> much. Awesome. This is this has been brightened my whole morning. It's beautiful outside. Everybody, get all of these books. Read all of Don Bentley. You won't be disappointed. Everybody have a great day, and stay safe. And bye. Bye.